Okay, good evening, the Parshas Bahar B'chukotai. I'd like to uh, say a word of introduction. This year is given in loving memory of Yosef first of Ronald of Rocha on the occasion of his 10th Yotzeit. Lilui Nishmat Yosef Tuv Yazal Ben Yisrael Aryeh Yibodah Lechayim Tovim Varukim. Uh, Yosef was a student of uh, mine in uh, Yeshivat HaMiftar, and we actually grew close. He used to come to my uh, parashashi on Thursday night, and I would take him back to Yerushalayim. Um, as I said on other occasions, I mean, he was uh, a special in that he knew exactly what he wanted to do with his life, and that was to save the Jewish people. And he was going to Yeshiva to find out what it was he was going to save them from. But he actually, young as he was, he had a serious position working for the joint in uh, Western Europe. And um, he sorely missed that. Personally, I, I know that I promised the family that I would finish a book, uh, the Maharal, do a translation and editing of the Maharal on Tzedakah, which I haven't done yet. I, mean, I haven't finished, I'm almost finished and I hope to get it done very soon <coughs> this last period was a difficult period for me medically it just goes to show can't depend on anything so um, it's the Yorzeit of Yosef Hirsch I hope to finish the book on Staka, which was his issue very soon and uh, I remind you again that all of these shiurim are sponsored in memory of Mr. Gerald Moskowitz by his family. Lilui Nishmat Gershon Alter Ben Yehuda Wolf Zah. Now the two parshiyot that we're going to read in Shul and Shabbat are extremely interesting. Why are they interesting? The parsha, let's say the parsha Bahar, the first parsha that we're going to read on Shabbat the Pasha Bahar includes many many psukim explaining the nature of the mitzvah of Shemitah of Shemitah the sabbatical year now you have to understand the picture the book of Ayikra the book of Ayikra is the book that was supposed to precede the entrance of Am Yisrael into Eretz Yisrael. We were de- uh, dissuaded from this because of the Chait Hamaraglim, because of the spies who went and came back with a report, a negative report about Eretz Yisrael. That was in the book of Bamidbar. <coughs> but had that not happened, at least in theory, we could say, at the end of Book of Vayikra, that was kind of uh, all that B'nai Yisrael needed to know before they came to Eretz Yisrael. And the parashiyot of Bahar and Bechukotai are the parashiyot, even though they're two different parashiyot, but in, in the consciousness of Am Yisrael, they contain the most essential information for those who are entering Eretz Yisrael, it will take one thing with the Parsha Bahar and one thing with the Parsha B'chukotai. So I told you that the Parsha Bahar 
is about Shemitah. Now, you know Shemitah, well, you don't know, because we really don't keep Shemitah. But imagine B'nai Yisrael. <coughs> They're coming to Eretz Yisrael. And Moshe Rabbeinu has informed them in the parashiyot of Achrei Mot and Kedoshim. Right, last week was Amor. The week before that was Achrei Mot and Kedoshim. Moshe Rabbeinu has already informed them that Eretz Yisrael is different. It's not like any place else in the world. Not only not only do transgressions affect your relationship, your individual relationship to God, but transgressions affect your, natu- your national connection to Eretz Israel. That somehow life in Eretz Israel is something that B'nai Israel has never experienced. They have no memory of that. They have no memory of getting kicked out of Eretz Israel for doing, for serving the idols of Canaan. It's true that Avram Avinu and then Yitzhak and then Yaakov had some difficulty with famine. And we could think about why that happened. And why it was that Avram Avinu had a problem. And why Yitzhak wasn't allowed to be Eretz Israel. And why Yaakov was. Well, I mean, these are things that, that concern us. But B'nai Israel, the nation of Israel, on the eve of entering Eretz Israel, <coughs> they learned two astounding things about Eretz Israel. One is, and that's Achrei Mot Kedoshim and Emor, that Eretz Israel, the land, the physical land, the inanimate land, the, the, the stones, the boulders, the gravel of Eretz Israel will not put up with a nation that consistently and invariably sins. And so that sinning and punishment is not just a question of the individual's relationship to God, but it's a question suddenly of national existence. Are we going to be able to last in Eretz Yisrael? And the answer is no. That if we sin as a nation, we're gone. And that's the introduction to Bahar and Bechukotai. Now what does Bahar say? What does the parish of Bahar say? The parish of Bahar says that the economics of living in Eretz Yisrael are different than the economics known at that time in the world. The economics known at that time in the world was uh, uh, clarified to us all by Yosef Atzadik. Right, Yosef? Who became the economic king, czar, the economic czar of Egypt. And what did he manage to produce? Which seemed perfectly reasonable at that time. That... (coughs) The king of Egypt owned Egypt. People came and they couldn't pay for food and they gave up land and they gave up more land until all the land was the property of the king of Egypt. And the amazing thing about it is that this made sense. It made sense to the people. They did not revolt they did not say, no, it can't be. 
Quite the contrary. They, they said, okay, up to now we were in a good position, a better position. No, we're not such a good position, but it makes sense to them. Or it made sense to them that the, <coughs> that the king of Egypt should be in total financial control of the state. Now, that may remind you of certain modern states, but, you know, if it does, that's your problem. The second thing, I mean, that's in the parasha of, I'm sorry, but in the parasha of Bahar, it says that ownership is an inalienable right. Ownership of land is an inalienable right. What does that mean? That ultimately, you could sell it, you could buy it back, you could sell it again, eventually, the Chalukah, the division of land that took place first under the auspices of Moshe Rabbeinu, and then under the auspices of Yoshua Benun, that division of land is inviolate. <coughs> so you might be able to get rich in Eretz Israel, but you're not going to get poor. There's a kind of a strong stand against poverty. When the Jewish people came into Eretz Israel, I mean, again, I don't know what actually happened, but this is the way we, we learned it. When the Jewish people came into Eretz Israel, each family had a nachalah. And that nachalah, you could barter it, you could change it, you could borrow money for, against it, you could do all of those things, but at the end, it belonged to you. At the end, it belonged to you. Imagine that. Everybody is denkner. Everybody... You go into the bank, and you say, lend me money. So the bank says, do you have collateral? And you say, yes, but you can't have it. To the bank, you say to the bank, but I want the loan anyway. And then, in some miraculous fashion, you get the loan. Imagine that happening. Hard to imagine. But that's the economics that the Torah was thinking of. The second economic factor. <coughs> which we learn in the parasha of Bahar is that you can't take interest. You imagine that? I understand. The banks understand that they can't give interest. But they know all about taking interest. And even though this business of interest was limited, Jew from Jew, and not Jew from non-Jew, but it was another way of, of saying that you can never really go into extreme poverty. Because in those days, if you check the records in Babylonia, something that I once had the pleasure of doing, you'd find out that the rates of interest were even higher than in the state of Israel. Much higher hundreds of percent interest. <coughs> and of course, those among hundreds Jews. percent, what? Among Jews? Or? No, no, Babylonian. No. Babylonian. This was the culture of the, of the world at that time. That the rich people, that the, that the poor people could never overcome their interest payments even if they were successful. You know, you know what I mean? 
like success, became an irrelevancy. But people kept doing it, hoping that they could get successful in a week. But if it took them a year, they were in trouble. Along came the Torah, along came the Torah, like you know. And the Torah said that <coughs> state of affairs, which encourages and develops and deepens poverty, cannot be. Cannot be. Now, we Jews in our history, and I'll skip a few years, right, to what's called the Middle Ages, the Jews found themselves in business. The Jews found themselves in business, and the only way that they could maintain their business was if they were able to get uh, loans, injections of money. And then they became a business of lending money. Well, you must have heard of the Rothschilds. They were in the business of lending. They were so good at it that they lent money to nations. That's how good they were. And of course, they took interest. They took interest in Jews. They took interest in non-Jews because that was their business. And somehow, <coughs> the Jews very cleverly figured out a way to take to do something that the Torah says is forbidden. Um, and they did it. And since then, uh, till today, they've refined that. It's called the Heter Iska. And they've like refined the, the, the actual... But, but there's no doubt that it goes against what the Torah seems to have wanted. Now, I tell you as an aside, believe me, I have no political interest here. Nothing. But I'll just tell you that a similar prohibition exists in the Quran. You know the Quran? I mean, you may not know it, but you like heard of it, right? The Quran is a holy book of Islam. And it contains all kinds of things in it. You know, stories, events, directives, what we call mitzvot. They, they, all that stuff is in the Quran. And one of the mitzvot in the Quran is a prohibition <coughs> against taking interest. Now, to me, it's a little embarrassing to have to say that the Arab banks in um, religious Muslim countries do not take interest. They don't take interest on your visa. They don't take interest on your accounts, your bank accounts. They don't take interest. They only take fees. Right? And the difference between a fee and an, an interest is that fees don't grow. They are fixed. That's what a fee is. Interest always grows. So that, at least on this point, on this point, the point of interest, <coughs> the uh, Islam has shown themselves to be more resolute than I'm Israel. I'm not talking about the fact that, you know, uh, explaining it or not explaining it, that in Europe we were not uh, too independent, we couldn't do whatever we wanted, there was a commonality of interest in us being moneylenders at certain points, etc., etc., etc. Who's a good guy and a bad guy? And the banks in the Arab banks are the Arabs. 
I mean, who owns the banks? You know, 14 sons of uh, this king and five sons of that king. It's a little bit different. But they did it. I mean, that's all I'm saying. I say that they did it. I want to a story about the... Uh, about the Chazanish. Chazanish, no, he was a great man. Even though you maybe not everybody agreed with everything that he thought or said, but he was a great man. To the Chazanish, they asked the Chazanish, why are you so uh, uh, determined to maintain Shemitah in Eretz Yisrael? After all, Shemitah is only Drabonon today. I mean, I'm sure that uh, to make a heter of one kind or another is not so terrible in the legal thinking of Am Yisrael. Why are you so determined that there should not be a heter mechira? Right, you know, heter mechira is like where you sort of sell the, sort of sell the land and it belongs to the Arabs and you know that in Yerushalayim, in the olden times, they used to eat fruits and vegetables that were grown by Arabs. It was on Shemitah, on the Shemitah year in Yerushalayim, like a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, when you could still do it. There weren't too many Jews, and there were a lot of Arabs, so a lot of Arabs who grew tomatoes. <coughs> and so you, <coughs> you could, on Shemitah, if you were so inclined, you could eat Arab tomatoes. Right? It was not a problem. Today you can't do that anymore because there aren't enough of that. Right? So you have to import tomatoes from Jordan, you know, and uh, other European countries in order to get non-Jewish tomatoes. There are other ways of dealing with Shemitah, but I'm just saying that that's one of the things that developed over time. So the Esther Chazanish why are you so determined? You know, this was one of the big debates between Rav Kook, who wrote a very important Sefer, Shabbat Aretz, on, uh, on the Heta Mechira, on the viability of the Heta Mechira. The Heta Mechira is still a big fight today amongst Rabbonim. <coughs> Ten years ago, when the chief rabbis were elected, the present chief rabbis were elected, Rabbi Riel also ran. He was one of the candidates. Rabbi Riel, about whom they speak today, and maybe he'll be a candidate like a dark horse. Is there such a thing? A dark horse could be a candidate. A white horse, not. So, so Rabbi Riel is sort of today another dark horse candidate. Only trouble is that since he's over 70, you'd have to change two laws. Which, you know... The laws are silly in themselves because everybody knows that great rabbis live to be a hundred, minimally. So why would they tell them to stop working at seventy? That's <coughs> so. Ten years ago, Rabbi Riel ran for uh, chief rabbi of Israel, but he would not agree to come out against the Heter Mechira because he thought he, being a Talmud of Merkas Arav and that whole. That school, he thought that the Hetem was legitimate, and therefore all the Haredin came out against him, and that's why he lost. And uh, the other candidate was not so determined. You know, he said, okay, you know, if I get the job, I'll do whatever you say. You know, like, that's what some people do. 
So they asked the Chazanish, I'm back to the story. They asked the Chazanish, why are you so uh, um, insistent on this Shemitah business, which any halachist can show you is not something that you have to be absolutely committed to. So this was the answer. I didn't hear the Chazanish say it. He died before I came to Eretz Yisrael. I heard somebody tell me the story. And you know how it is with stories? It doesn't matter if they're true or not. But if they last, that usually means they could have been true. And that's good enough. So they say that the Chazanish said this. There are two mitzvot that determine the national character of Am Yisrael. Imagine that. Two mitzvot that determine the national character of Am Yisrael and differentiate it from the other nations. What are the two mitzvot? What two mitzvot? He says, Ribit and Shemitah. That's the Chazanish. And he said, Ribit, we've already lost. And Shemitah is the only national mitzvah that we can hold on to. And say, we're not like everybody else. So I think that today, the way we keep Shemitah is a little bit uh, comical in some ways. But, it is true that there is some interest in rejuvenating uh, the Otsar Beitin, for example. In, in other words, making it more real. Making it a little bit more real than... Uh, so that's a Chazanish's vision. <coughs> in other words, the Pasha of Bahar. Remember the Pasha of Bahar? Parsha Bahar is the Parsha of national content. It says something about Am Yisrael. It says, like, what do we have to be? Well, we have to be concerned about ownership, that it doesn't dissipate and go away. We have to be strongly against poverty and strongly against interest. Whether you're a bank or you're a private lender, or you're a borrower, <coughs> you lend money or you borrow money in order that you should be able to live, not in order to postpone your death. And that's what the Torah says. That's what the Torah says. Now, we have difficulty with that. We have, we, I don't mean we, uh, those two guys walking the street. I mean, we from Jews who are trying to live a life of mitzvot, we have trouble with that. Because we're caught up in it. We're caught up, you know, the, you can't uh, make... Today it's very hard to make a choice to be poor. Very, very difficult. I mean, the closest thing is you say you'll be a teacher. That's the, the closest thing. to. So I think that those are the most uh, idealistic people we have. I mean, the, you know, it's hopeless. Once you're stuck in the system, you'll never get anywhere. That's uh, <coughs> that's the parasha Bahar. The parasha B'chukotai is the last parasha in the book of Ayikra. Right? The last parasha in the book of Ayikra. And it contains the brachot and the klalot. The blessings and the curses. As Moshe Rabbeinu said, will accrue to B'nai Yisrael blessings if they, blessings if they act properly. And curses if they don't. And this is the new contract 
that was written between Moshe Rabbeinu HaKadosh Baruch Hu B'nai Yisrael on the eve of their entry into Eretz Yisrael. Remember, the parish of Bechukotai <coughs> is the last parish in the book of Ayikra. And the last parish in the book of Ayikra is the entry to Eretz Yisrael. The entry to Eretz Yisrael. I remind you that the end of the parish, uh, the end of the book of Dvarim which was the actual entering of Eretz Yisrael, into Eretz Yisrael, that the end of the book of Dvarim as the parish of Kitavo. And the parish of Kitavo is once again a rewriting of this covenant. A rewriting of this covenant. <coughs> so what I'd like to do now is take a look at the positive leaving out the negative for tonight, we'll look at the positive of the agreement between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and B'nai Yisrael. So if you look at the sheet, the sheet starts this, you know, a lot of ink has been spilled, as they say, in literary circles, on this idea of Teilechu, right? Halacha, that you go in the way of the Torah, or you go in the way of the Chukim, of the dictates of the Torah. What do you mean that you go in that way? Well, is there a difference between a static acceptance of the obligation and a dynamic acceptance of the... Of the uh <coughs> So Rashi says, in this famous comment, if you look at Rashi, Yecholze Kiyum HaMitzvot is, is the Pasuk referring to mitzvot, to doing the mitzvot? Kshiu Omer Vet Mitzvotai Tishmaru, so it can't be. It says, in the Chukotai Teilechu, beginning of the Pasuk. Then it says, Et Mitzvotai Tishmaru, or Tishmaru, so the Chukotai can't be mitzvot. Because after the Kukutai, it says Mitzvot. So, too many words. Here it is. There isn't anybody who's ever learned in a yeshiva. I can't vouch for the seminaries, but there isn't anybody who has ever learned in the yeshiva for more than three days who has not heard from somebody about Amelut Batorah. And Amelut, what is Amelut Batorah? What is Amelut Batorah? It's the enterprise of it as opposed to the results of it. I think. I mean, this is what I think. When I first went to Rabbi Salavechik Shir, I used to try to prepare. And then I realized that I didn't always get it right. And Rabbi Soloveitchik, he always got it right. So then I said, well, maybe I shouldn't prepare. I should just review. Well, why should I prepare it if I'm going to get it wrong? So, So I stopped preparing, and I only reviewed. And that was fine, you know, I got it. But I was missing out what Rashi said. 
that you have to be Amel Batorah. Amel Batorah doesn't mean you always get it. It means you try. And the trying has some ethical value. And you know, the reason, maybe the reason that the Torah is, that the Gemara is written in such a, uh, a, a seemingly disorderly way is because it wants you to work at it. That's Amelim Batorah. <laughs> which is a dynamic word indicates your attempt maybe it'll be successful maybe it won't be so successful maybe you'll be the next genius of our generation maybe you won't but everybody has to work at it that's what Rashi like in these two lines in Rashi he gave us this idea and of course, since everybody knows Chumash and Rashi, well, that was the Jewish education of old, <coughs> I was always amazed. And my father, Zechronel Rachel, knew Chumash and Rashi Baalpeh. Not because he uh, tried to know it Baalpeh, but that's how they learn. They just learn everything by heart. We're very modern, so we don't want to uh, annoy the children. You don't want to annoy the children, so you don't want to learn by heart. Kids don't like them. They have, a, they have an opinion. Kids have an opinion, you know. It doesn't matter how young they are. Well, which is a bad idea, you know, like if you... Uh, <coughs> you listen to people talk who know a lot by heart. So they talk with those words. It makes a difference. It makes a difference. That's a different topic. Okay. That mitzvah taitish moru hevu amelim b'torah menat l'shmor l'kayim. In other words, amelut, this hard work that you put into learning Torah, it encourages you to, you to keep the Torah more carefully. This is the nitziv. I'm sorry, the nevshachayim, nevshachayim v'lojana. You know, there's this difference of opinion between the Hasidim and the non-Hasidim about what religiosity was. I mean, how do you gain some modicum of religiosity? So, they, so the Hasidim said, Hasidim said, you want to do a mitzvah better? Do it longer. Think about it. You want to shake a lulav better? Shake it all day. Right, you want to put on tefillin better? Wear your tefillin for a long time. But the Nevesh HaChaim, HaChaim Velozhin, who was a student of the Vilna Gon, who was the world's expert in Kabbalah at the time, but a misnagid nonetheless. So the HaChaim <coughs> Velozhin said, if you want to put on tefillin better, learn Torah. If you want to shake a lulav better, learn Torah. So he asked him, you mean I should learn the Torah about the lulav? Or I should learn the Torah about the tefillin? He said, no. It doesn't matter what Torah you learn. The religiosity comes from the Torah. And that changes the act. That changes the act so that the... (coughs) Hasidim said, you want to daven? Daven? Daven longer, daven harder, daven with your eyes shut tightly, or your eyes open wide. That's what the Hasidim said. The Misnagdim said, learn Adav Gemara. 
I mean, learn it well. Learn it properly. Learn it intensively. Learn the Gemara. And then you'll daven better. I'm not taking sides. There's no doubt that the challenge that the Litvaks placed before the Talmidim was too great for most people. What do you mean? I've learned Torah. You know, it's not that easy. It's not like... Uh, but apparently, if you want to stand someplace with your eyes closed, very shut, shut very tight, most people can do that. Or many people can do that. Right? And it's like, it's like easy. It's like today, you know, we live in the world of retreats. You know what a retreat is? Like, instead of doing it all the time, you do it for a couple of hours over the weekend. Whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is. In other words, retreats, they don't solve your problem. They... <laughs> And they just give you a taste of the solution. Because nobody wants to solve the problem. Everyone wants to go to work. So I want to go to work and make money. So you're not going to, like, solving your problem. It's sort of uh, an irrelevancy. So that's what the first Pasuk says. Pasuk Gimel. Pasuk Dalit. V'natati gishmechem b'itam. V'netlaha aret zivula. V'etza sadeh yitain piriyo. So these are the good things that are going to happen. Right? Vatati gishmechem b'itam. So we know, I've mentioned several times, that in the creation, man was creation, created according to Rashi, remember to Davin. In the chukotai if you're successful being a human being, doing what human beings, individuals, are supposed to do, which is to Davin, then you'll get the rain etc, etc, and then there are a few psukim <coughs> talk about <coughs> what, what grows, what will grow look at pasuk dvav v'natati shalom ba'aretz shchavtem ve'en macharid v'shbati chayar amin ha'aretz v'cherev lo ta'avo ba'artzachem so shalom this is like the things that you yearn for. The thing that you yearn for are economic independence. Everybody has enough money to live in a reasonable way. And shalom. There are no enemies that are about to take you down and to destroy you. And the Rambam in Hilchot Mulachim picks up on this. The Rambam, also, I, I, I think we mentioned um, in Hilchot Hanukkah, <coughs> the Rambam says that political independence is a divine virtue. He doesn't say that, but he like says the equivalent of that. Political independence is a divine virtue. That's why even those machlogas in the Gemara about whether there's a mitzvah to appoint a king when you come to Eretz Yisrael, according to the Rambam, there's a mitzvah to appoint a king. We don't know how the Rambam <coughs> knows that. <coughs> we don't know how the Rambam knows that, but I mean, you could theorize, but that's what the Rambam says. That you have to have a king. In order to have political independence, in order to have shalom ba'aretz, you have to have a king. So this is true that this, these psukim are God's promise to us, but we also have to do something. We always have to be repositories for goodness. It's not that God is I got the, like a big pizza store in heaven and it's going to like throw out the pizzas to everybody. 
But the goodness that comes from heaven has to find a recipient. There has to be somebody in the world who can accept that goodness. Just like B'nai Yisrael had to be worthy of receiving the Torah when the Torah was given to them. Otherwise it would have just slid off into the ground. Like if the Torah was written in Japanese. Then you couldn't say it was given to anybody. It was standing at Harsinai, I mean. Says nobody. Sp- yeah, you, you have to be able to speak the language of the gift. You have to be worthy of receiving it. If you're not worthy of receiving, you're not going to get it. Sadhguru Maharal discusses this at, at some length. So that's Shalom Ba'aretz. Natadi Shalom. You look at Rashi. Shematom Ruare Machal Ba'are Mishte. Maybe you'll say, what's the difference if I have lunch? If I don't have peace, so everything can fall apart at any time. Talmud Lomar, Rachar Kol Zot Vinatati Shalom Ba'aretz. Mikan Shalom Shakul Kineged And This is also the opinion of the Ramah. Everything comes from peace. And peace is your obligation. Peace is your obligation, and in history it's been true that people who are able to maintain the quiet by force, you don't really have any place to go but down. So again, I don't know. I don't know the answer to any of these big questions, but for example, we are today maintaining peace by force. Generally, that's not a good idea, but, you know, we always have new things to say. So the, so the Barbanel asked the following question. The Barbanel asked the following question about the nature of things in the world. <coughs> the Barbanel said, How come all of the benefits that we accrue for doing the mitzvot are pragmatic. Pizza, shawarma, peace. He says, what about something with spiritual concept? What about olam What about tchiat ametim? Why doesn't the Torah say if you keep the mitzvot you're going to have a most wondrous life? That's the question of the Barbanel. Question of the Barbanel. <coughs> now, in this regard, there is a uh, there is a, uh, a comment that the Ibn Ezra makes. <coughs> you know, even though I don't learn the, the Barbanel as regularly as I learned Rashi and the Ramban, the Barbanel knew everything. I mean, he's not a, he didn't get into the Mikrot Kedolot only because he's upset the Kabbalah. The Ibn Ezra did not become part of the Mikrot Kedolot because he had a relative who worked for Bamberg. He, he, he deserved to be in the Mikrot Kedolot. So it's a different kind of way of looking at things. There's a passing in Dvari. You see on page two of the sheet at the top, Ruk Ata Kiani Anihu. So God says, at the end of the Torah, 
I am unique, I am alone, there are no other gods with me, Ani Amitzvah Chayet. I will, I do death, I produce death, I produce life, I produce life after death. Right? Machadsti, Vani I destroy and I will, 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 uh, uh, heal. heal, thank you, heal. No one can escape. No one can escape. So here you have the the uh, so here in the um, the Ibn Ezra. Just one second. Yes. You see the third wide line. And even Ezra. <coughs> First, he points out that there are other psukim in the Tanakh that have this combination of words: Amit, Meimit, Mechayet, Ra'ed, Hashem, Marich, Ol, Vayar. In other words, there are those who say, I guess, that this is a kind of a regular formulation: Meimit, Mechayet, God. The things die. Things are born again. That has no special significance. It's just the guy has that power. God is in charge of the areas of death and life. But now listen to what he says. Achirim Amru. You see that? So it's also that seems to be out of order. Which is? I'm saying the wording should be life, give life and death. Okay, good. That, that's a, the the fortune aspect. <laughs> but I'm interested in what the, what the Ibn Ezra says the Ibn Ezra says Achirim Amru there are those who argue Mipasuk Ra'achadimchen le'nafshoteichem gam utzakati yelanu there are these psukim kihi chayecha ba'olam haba that meimit u'mechayeh means first you die and then you are rejuvenated to another life. Now, we know that in the tradition, our tradition there's p'chiyat ha-metim, there's achrit ha-yamim, and t'achrit et metim and gan eiden, and then ziva shechina. Now, when each comes into play, is not something we can deal with right now. <coughs> but the Ibn Ezra says, He chayecha ba'olam haba. That this posuk is the indicator that there is something called olam haba. Now what is olam haba? We'll see in a minute. But even if you don't know exactly what olam haba is, we all know that we have a kind of a dream about olam haba. There's a, you know, olam haba. Olamabad means something good beyond this world. There's something good that, that awaits us. That's Olamabad. <coughs> it's not clear where Olamabad comes from. Who said that there is Olamabad? According to this, even Ezra, some people say that this passage teaches us about Olamabad. Baruch Yomecha, 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 Baruch Yomecha,
Ben Rabbeinu Hai, he quotes Rabbeinu Hai, right? Rabbeinu, Rabbeinu Hai <coughs> was the last Rosh Yeshiva in Pumbedisa. He was the last Rosh Yeshiva in Pumbedisa and the son of the son of Rav Shriagol. Rav Shriagol was famous because he wrote a, a long letter uh, or became not I didn't mean that I meant he became famous for us because he wrote a long Igeret called Igeret Rav Shriagol about the history of the halachic process. It's a little uh, you know hard to understand sometimes but it's very interesting very interesting uh, uh, letter. His son, Rav Hai, was the greatest Gaon of all, except that in his time already, already the centers of Torah learning were definitely moving westward. You know, from Babylon, Pavel, to North Africa, Italy, Spain, <coughs> France, <coughs> and Germany, right? You, you, you remember all of that? So he says, how come the Torah doesn't say anything about Allah Abba? You know the Gemara, there's a Gemara Psochem that says, this Kosok, may meet him and Oz Yoshir Moshe. You know Oz Yoshir Moshe? Oz? Do you remember there's a question about Oz? When, when, when is Oz? It was now, it wasn't. Oh, no, no, just like now, so too later. Where's later? In Olam Abba. <coughs> so the inter- an interesting point is, not so much, uh, is that a good Russia? But why is it that the Torah didn't mention it in an obvious way? Right, remember, remember the question, why isn't Olam Abba mentioned in an obvious way in the Torah. So he says, tradition. In other words, the Torah didn't have to mention Olam Haba because the Talmidei Chachamim, they learned it by tradition. Which means that Moshe Rabbeinu told them. So if Moshe Rabbeinu told them that there was Olam Abba, there was no reason for them to d- doubt it. To have any question about it. <coughs> so get back to the Abarbanel. The Abarbanel said... What? Who? No, no, the Abarbanel. I got it right this time. The Abbaphanel said, How come the Torah doesn't mention Olam Haba? That was the Abbaphanel's question. And Rav Haigon's answer was, Well, I mean, there's a lot of things the Torah doesn't mention that we only know because of the tradition of learning. So this is another thing that we know from the tradition of learning. Nothing to get uh, too excited about. Very good to excited. Now let's look at a Rambam. <coughs> That's the answer. So I, I, the parsha b'chukotai, like we came to Eretz Yisrael, we lived the life of Shmita and and Rebis. No, you know Shmita and no Rebis. And then 
we're looking so we did it <coughs> what are we going to get so what we're going to get is a good life why not Olam Haba ok also Olam Haba now what does the Rambam say you see it on the sheet that big tova, you know, tov, tov is a very big word <coughs> in the Jewish vocabulary. Tov means when everything is as it should be. That's tov. He chaye olam abba. This is the rejuvenation of the dead that we pray for. And after they are rejuvenated, right? It's just tov. That's the future. That's what it says in the Torah several places. Yitav Arachta Yamim Alamdu that's Torah Shalpeh. In other words, it's the correct interpretation. It's definitely getting worse. I was supposed to be cured. Anyway, Shekulo Tov, Arachli Yamim, Olam Shekulo Aroch, Bezel, Olam Abba, Schar Tzadikim, He Yishu Yizku, Alinoam Zeh, V'yu B'Tovazo, Upera Ona Rishainu, Shelo Yizku L'Chayim, Eilu, Ela, Yichretu V'Yamutu, there is somebody who I think what he's trying to explain is that when we say it's not just that dead people will be rejuvenated but it's that dying is only part of the life we are living now <coughs> in which Tov can only be hinted at. But after Tchiyata Meitim, after the rejuvenation, we're talking about a different kind of life, where everything can be told. And that could be in uh, whatever Olam Hazer is at that time, or Olam, or Olam Abba. So I would like to get back to, uh, I mean, I'd like to get back to the Abba else question. So why didn't the Torah tell us something about Allah Abba. Why do we have to believe in each other about something that's so important? I mean, while well, the Torah would say it, it would be good for us. You know, about Shir Hashirim, there was an argument whether Shir Hashirim could be included in the, let's say, in the Tanakh or in the holy books or whether Shir Hashir was a little risque and uh, here we have we've learned that the parishes of Achimos Kedoshim 
uh, Arias or Rashi and, and, and the Ramban and, and the parishes, I mean, Arias is a terrible thing. So you would think that writing a book which connected uh, love and, and, and sexuality to, uh, to my fondest dream and wish might be really a, a cause for uh, denial. But why, why put that book into the collection? So you know, Rabbi Akiva said, if everything is Kodesh, so Shir Hashir is Kodesh Kodesh. What did Rabbi Akiva mean? I mean, what might he have meant? Let's say we'll make up something, but I mean, certainly it doesn't make sense to say, <coughs> you know, that some, uh, some book on car mechanics is kosher, is Kodesh, and Lady Chatterley's lover is Kodesh Kodeshim. That doesn't make much sense, right? So, what Rabbi Akiva was saying is that Kodesh is a word that is used to describe something that is real. And Kodesh Kodeshim is the word that's used to describe something that is not describable. Kodesh Kodeshim is where the Kohen Gadol alone went in on the on Yom Kippurim, and before he went in, he went in with this censer that had the Ketoret on it and filled the room with with uh, 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 smoke and you couldn't see anything so when you can't see anything can you describe it? hard to imagine hard to imagine so if it is true that the book of Shir Hashirim <coughs> describes the love and affection what is called in many places unity or unification, the unity between man slash woman and God, is it a describable event? So Rabbi Akiva said it's not. It's not describable. It was Kodesh Kodeshim is when all you have is a metaphor, because that's all you can have. You can't do better than that. You cannot do better than the metaphor. So that, that when you talk about <coughs> the relationship between God and Am Yisrael in a positive and a, and, a, and a remarkable way, all you can say is the metaphor. And in fact, if we were Hasidically inclined Hasidically, I mean, not to be a chassid, but to think in the way certain chassidim thought, we <coughs> would say, why did God make us so that we reproduce in the way that we do? Why didn't God make us like paramecium, which I remember from high school reproduced by smashing into the side of the petri dish I don't know if the petri dish was their natural habitat or not but they don't keep paramecium in zoos so, so it's, it could be that way you could say you know like an itch you say oh now I want to make another one and bang into a tree and then there's another one and yet 
<coughs> we know that the nature of relationships for men and women are not the same. I mean, let's forget about the purposes for a minute. They're not the same as the relation the animal kingdom. Yes, there are relationships. <coughs> but there's no romance. There's no romantic love. That, well, that doesn't exist. Right? So why did God produce us so that we somehow needed romantic love in order to do this like pretty simple thing of having more of us? So it seems to me that it's like Shira Shirin. That when you can't describe something, but you know it's there. So you create a metaphor for it. And that's what I think uh, Rabbi Akiva was saying. So, <coughs> so now, now, these psukim at the beginning of Bukhukotai, Let's say, you'll have rain, and you'll have wheat, and you'll have peace. We can also look at that as a metaphor. That's the metaphor for Olam Haba. Because only in Olam Haba does everything always work out correctly. Olam Hazar, there's always tension. And so really, there can't be a promise that everything will be okay. Because the way we are is that not everything is okay. But the metaphor of Olam Hazer is Olam Haba. Because when, once you see goodness, you know that it can be multiplied. And it can be expanded. And it can be redirected. And all of that is true. So this is the story <coughs> of the parashiyot of Bahar and Mechukotai. Bahar about creating the new nation of Israel. And the Chukotai about the hope that the future has to offer. Have a good Shabbos.